So, as I was preparing to teach this week, um, and just thinking about the, the passage that Adam just told you to turn to, uh, I was reading through various commentaries and some different online sources on the topic of wisdom. We're going to talk about wisdom this morning. And I came across this website. It was this article just talking about the topic of wisdom, what it means, what biblical wisdom looks like. Um, and I, th- I thought it was interesting because at the top of the, the website, there's this big green uh, circle with a checkbox in it, or check mark on it. And at the top of the article, it said, this article has been fact-checked. And I thought that was a little weird, given the context of the article. Um, uh, but there it is. Like, this is the world that we live in, right? You know, we live in a world of independent fact-checkers, of, of, of needing independent fact-checkers, because we're not quite sure of... of, of, of the information that we're about to consume, whether it's reliable, whether it's, whether it's good, whether it can be trusted, that this is the world that we live in, you know, and, and whether it's news or politics or how we engage with those things over social media, it's, it's an experience that we've all probably had uh, in one way or another over the last couple of years. And for some of us... Um, the words fact checker might bring a, a sense of confidence, you know, in the, in, in the, in the fact that, that what you're about to read, it, it can be trusted, it's a reliable source, there's, there's other uh, data or information behind it that's, that's, uh, that's trustworthy. And for some of us, uh, the words fact checker can make your blood boil as you think about the fact that, that um, you know, you, you can't be certain that there's not a worldview or like a... Uh, or an underlying motivation that isn't like kind of turning and twisting the way that we perceive uh, the information that we're about to, to, to consume. And it's not my intent to come up here and to, to make your blood boil or to make you feel confident or whatever. It, it really is just to, 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 to acknowledge that this is the world that we live in and this is something that we can all relate to. And I think it's particularly interesting because in the text, again, that we're going to look at this morning in, in James chapter 3, James is going to ask an important question. And then he's going to position our answer or our response to this question in a way that he's going to, he's going to fact check our life. You know, he's going, to look at, he's going to look at the evidence or the proof of our life or, or the wisdom that we live out in life. And he's going to say, does it align with the answer to my question. So let's read it together. Again, James chapter 3, we're going to be starting in verse 13. And I think there it is. So this is what James says. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, Considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. 
What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. All right. So there it is. That's what James has to say for us this morning. And there are really two things that I'm hoping that we can see uh, as we look at the text. Uh, first, and I've already kind of alluded to it by means of, uh, of the illustration of this fact-checking reality, James is going to introduce two types of wisdom uh, for us this morning. And he's going to talk about the source of each wisdom, what our motivation is. Uh, he's going to talk a, about several ways that these different types of wisdom uh, yield different kinds of fruit in our life. And on the basis of that fruit, James is going to challenge his reader. He's going to challenge us in response to their answer to his question, who is wise and understanding among you? So we're going to spend some time there, uh, and this is going to give us a framework for some soul searching. Uh, It's going to give us a framework for some honest assessment of where we're at. You know, what kind of wisdom do we live out in our life? How do we interact with those around us in our community? But another big theme in this passage that we're going to look at this morning is this reality of peace. And James is going to make it clear that the, the presence or the absence of peace in our life, in our life and in our relationships is very much related to the kind of wisdom that we live out and exhibit in our life. So I said it once, I'll I'll say it again. James begins this section by asking the question, who is wise and understanding among you? Now for sure, his audience would have had lots of different responses to a question like this. Some people in his audience would have been like, not me. You know, I know my life. I know the way that I mess up. I am absolutely not wise and understanding. The proof is, is there. Some probably like, this is how I would actually answer it. I'd be like, well, sometimes, you know. Sometimes I'm wise. Sometimes I make good decisions that have good outcomes. Sometimes I absolutely blow it. I do the wrong thing. I, you know, yeah, maybe, sometimes. But then there's another group of people who hears a question like this, and they're like, yep, you better believe it. I am wise. Look at what I know. Look at, look at me. Look at what I can do. Look at what I've done, that he, he or she would approach a question like this with a, a sense of boastfulness or pride or spiritual arrogance. This is something that Adam's actually talked about over the last couple of weeks, that one of the things that James is confronting is this sense of spiritual pride or arrogance. And James, in the passage this morning, is going to expose that for what it is. So, before we talk about wisdom and understanding, I thought it would be helpful, at least it was helpful for me to kind of to define some terminology. So I'm like, all right, what is wisdom after all? And, you know, some of us might look at a word like wisdom and think, oh, well, it's knowledge. It's like what you know. And uh, one, of the, one of the definitions that I looked up said that it was knowledge and the capacity to make use of it in your life. And I thought that was good. 
Um, I thought that was helpful to kind of understand what we're talking about this morning. But I wanted to get a little bit of a deeper understanding and kind of wrestle through, like, how would I define uh, wisdom? So I looked at a few different verses in the Bible, uh, and one that, that probably most of you have heard before is this idea that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, so there is a, a sense in which our, our posture before God, one of, of, of humility, of awe, of honor, and, and respect, and reverence before God opens us up to be able to receive the wisdom of God in our lives and to live as wise people. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. James talks about it too, doesn't he? Earlier in this book, in chapter 1, he makes it clear that in order to receive wisdom, we have to ask for it. So it's not just posture. It's not just how we position ourselves before God. We actually have to go to Him in prayer to receive it. And then I was hanging out in Colossians, and, and I saw that uh, Paul said this as, he, as he's addressing the church. He he asks that they would have a knowledge of the will of God through wisdom and understanding so that they might live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So there is a sense in which the wisdom from God, it affects the way that we live. It enables us to bear fruit and to honor God. All right, so here's my working definition of wisdom based on uh, some of these key passages in the Scriptures. Wisdom is a God-given virtue that enables humans to take knowledge from God and to apply it to life in a way that brings honor to him and bears kingdom fruit. Now, I'm absolutely 100% confident that there are way better definitions for wisdom uh, out there than mine, but this has helped me to kind of frame up uh, what we're talking about this morning. And as we read on in James, we see that there are two types of wisdom that he's going to talk about this morning. This wisdom that is uh, the NIV says, uh, I think, from heaven, heavenly wisdom. Uh, that really means just from above, wisdom that is from God. And then there's this wisdom that he calls earthly wisdom or unspiritual or demonic even. And as has been the theme throughout the book of James, we're going to see that there is, again, tangible fruit by which we can discern which type of wisdom is evident in our life. So I'll ask it again. And James asks of us, who is wise and understanding among you? Now, James doesn't say let him prove it by his vast Bible knowledge. Those are, that's really good. You know, it's good to know the Bible. Um, he doesn't say let him prove it by his church attendance, though that is also very, very good. He says let him show it by their good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So as often as the case with James, again, he says, look, your actions speak louder than your words. Don't 
Tell me about your wisdom. Show me your wisdom in the way that you live your life. He says that it is a good life by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. I love, I love it when you kind of see like the meaning behind words. This is stuff that I never see when I like read it, but when Adam asked me to teach, then, then I'm like, well, I, you know, to be a good Bible teacher, you got to look at the Greek, you got to look and see what these words mean, you know, what it would conjure up in, in people's minds as they, you know, as they heard these different words. And I thought it was amazing here that the word good could be translated as beauty that inspires others. Isn't that amazing? James is telling us that the wisdom from God lived out in our life is, is basically living a beautiful life that inspires other people. I love that this ties into that, that garden metaphor that we've talked about several times over the course of our study on this book. And, you know, as we, as we tend uh, uh, the garden of our life and our, and our relationship, wisdom is making this garden beautiful. And what a wonderful and positive challenge that is for us to live in such a way as to bring the beauty of God to others so that they can see His beauty. As 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 12 says, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Longwood Gardens. Uh, we went uh, as a church um, a couple years ago now, I guess. Maybe a year and a half, a year ago. Well, anyway, it's this beautiful garden. Um, and in the springtime, there are just thousands upon thousands of blooms, flowers of all different colors that just fill the grounds. And it's amazing to see uh, all of the beauty and the color. And this is how I imagine that our lives can look when we talk about our good life, to, to fill it up with the beauty of divine wisdom for the world to see and enjoy and to embrace. But I also want to focus on the word humility that he talks about. Depending on your translation, you might read uh, the word humility, you might read the word meekness, you might read the word gentleness. Uh, and this is from the Greek word uh, praeutes, uh, which is the noun form of the word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes when uh, he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I think it's interesting to me that, uh, and again, this is something that I never would have seen, but in this context, I, I looked it up. Uh, the, the root word pra in praeutes emphasizes divine origin, the divine origin of humility, uh, this meekness, this gentleness, it affirms that it is from above, that this humility can only ultimately come from God. And it doesn't express weakness. It communicates power that is expressed with reserve and gentleness that begins with the Lord's inspiration. It's from Him and it finishes uh, by God's direction and by His empowerment. It is strength from God that is brought into submission to God. And it can only be expressed by us by being in Christ. What does Jesus say about this? 
Well, in John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, apart from being in me, abiding in me, you can do nothing. And Paul, he agrees with James in his assessment of humility. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3-4, through where he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Listen to how James talks about the opposite of this divine wisdom. This is in verse 14. He says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly. It is unspiritual. It is demonic. This wisdom isn't good. It's not beautiful. It's not rooted in humility. Of course not by by Paul's definition of the word, but rather it's the exact opposite in every way. Where, where Paul says to do nothing out of selfish ambition or, or vain conceit, this, this wisdom from the world is at its core motivated by self. And I think James wants his reader to be taken aback a little bit by his his description of this wisdom. To the, to the one who is spiritually arrogant, to the one who is boasting in his great wisdom, James, he's like, actually, this is earthly wisdom that you're exhibiting. It is unspiritual wisdom. Some translations translate this word to be sensual or natural, or, or we could think of it as a fleshly. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his, his translation, The Message, he actually calls this type of wisdom animal cunning. Your wisdom is like an animal's wisdom. And James, again, he pokes at his reader by describing it as demonic. And the best way that I can describe this wisdom, the best way that I can come to terms with it, is to to acknowledge that at our very best, this earthly wisdom, it comes from the brokenness and the sin of this world and in our own hearts and our own desires that is born out of our flesh. I learned this week that James invented the air quotes, which I thought was interesting. In the NIV, he calls it wisdom. He says, such wisdom does not come down from heaven. Truth be told, the air quotes are not there, right, Adam? Correct. I was kind of bummed to learn that. I was hoping that they were actually there because I, you know. So I'm going to go with it. I actually hear it, though. When, when James says it, I hear it. I hear that this is what he's saying. I think he's doing it. So I'm going to go with it. So what's the root of the wisdom? What's the motivation of this kind of wisdom? Well, he says that it's bitter envy, that it's selfish ambition. James basically says, if these words describe you, then this is not the wisdom from God in your life. Don't deny the truth that your life is telling. And if 
you're like me, this is about the point where it starts to get a little uncomfortable. Because if I'm being honest with myself, if I'm not lying about the truth, uh, I see this earthly wisdom at play in my life all the time. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it is subtle. But for certain, it is real. We all encounter life lived in this way as followers of Jesus. After all, what is bitter envy? Is it not a lack of gratitude at times that leads to bitterness and discontent in our heart? Is it not looking at others and and desiring what they have or to be more like them? Is it not a lack of contentment at what God has given us and instead a desire for what God has given others? So how do you and I experience this? Well, maybe it's when we look at what those around us make financially, at their jobs or the, the work that they do or the car that they drive or the house that they live in or the way that they look or the way that they dress or how perfectly curated their Instagram feed looks in comparison to your life. This type of, of comparison, whether it is by the gaze of our eyes or the scrolling of our our social feeds, it is the killer of our contentment. And it leads to bitter envy in our heart. Now, just as a testimony for how this can subtly creep in, I was preparing to teach this week. Um, We are very fortunate as a church to have an amazing teacher in Adam. uh, And Nazareth is very fortunate um, to have a great teacher in Jim. So I'm aware of this. Um, and, and, and these, these men are really hard to like come up and teach after, in my mind. Uh, so here I am, almost paralyzed on this Monday. I was having this spiritual battle in my mind. Paralyzed, like, oh, everybody's so used to hearing these amazing teachers. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I, you know, I want that gift. I don't want the gift that you've given me, God. I want that gift. And, 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 you know, I, I just shouldn't even do it. I'm calling. I'm, I'm going to call him right now. I'm not doing it. I'm not teaching. So this is like the battle. This is the way that we look, look to others. We, com, we compare ourselves to others, and we, we don't allow God to use us for who we are and what he's given us. And to be sure, there are a thousand other ways that this, this creeps in, uh, that, that I have experienced this struggle from, whether it's desiring to be to look like other people or to be more successful or to, to have the, the learning and the knowledge and the intelligence that other people have. I get it. It is real. And, and whereas envy is the outward-looking fruit of earthly wisdom, selfish ambition, where does it look? It looks right squarely at ourselves. It doesn't seek the good of others. It doesn't seek to live a beautiful and a good life for the benefit of others. In fact, at its core, it's not interested in others at all. This is the driving motivation that James uh, talks about in in chapter 4, which we'll talk about in a little bit, when he says that uh, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. It's all about you. And, and James looks to this kind of wisdom 
And he tells us where it ultimately leads in this life. That it leads to disorder and evil practice. And I will add to, to conflict, to, to an absence of peace. What does he say? He says, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Now, I have to think that I'm not the only one in this room or among those uh, joining us online that have seen the absence of, of peace or a state of disorder or conflict in our life, either as a result of someone else's making or as a result of our own making. And I think this is where James is driving at in chapter Four, that this, this envy, this ambition, what does it lead to? It leads to killing, to quarreling, to fighting. And ultimately, you never get what you actually long for. You never actually receive fulfillment in your heart. Now, I know we're skipping ahead a bit uh, into chapter 4, but what does he say? He says, you desire but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Bitter envy, selfish ambition, fighting, disorder. There is no peace. You desire, but you don't have, and so you kill for it. Now, how many of you have ever killed somebody because you have not gotten the thing that you have wanted? Adam is the only one. <laughs> you know, so obviously we don't, we don't go that far, but, but what about anger in our hearts? Have you ever experienced anger in your heart because you didn't get what you wanted? How about bitterness? How about jealousy? How about frustration? How about a lack of patience? A lack of mercy? A lack of kindness? Have you ever experienced those things? when you haven't gotten the things that you were after in life? I know I have. So with all of this fighting, it's clear to me that when we lack peace in our own life, in our own heart, in, in the way that we chase after our own desires, this inner conflict, it results in a lack of peace around us, in our relationships. And I just imagined it like a bomb going off. And the lack of peace in our own heart is ground zero. And the destruction that is all around us is the way that our lack of peace affects our relationships. Now, quick footnote, because I think it's really important to say this. Not all lack of peace in your life and in your relationships comes from you. It doesn't always come from me. Sometimes it comes from the world. Sometimes it comes from other people. And so often we experience the collateral damage of bombs going off in other people's lives. And that's why James, I think, is so intent on bringing this to life. Because he wants... God's people to not be double-minded. He wants us to live in a way that be, uh, brings peace and not destruction. Peace and not conflict. Peace and not disorder. And the reality is, 
that as Christians, we really have the capacity to live out both kinds of this wisdom in our life. We have the capacity for wisdom from God, divine wisdom, wisdom from above that is expressed through the beauty and the good works that come from a humble and gentle heart. And we have the capacity to be consumed by ourselves and to live according to the wisdom of this world. We're not immune to envy. We're not immune to ambition that leads to disorder and to disunity, to evil. We see it just as much in our own lives and in the the church, don't we? Whether it's a sharp disagreement about a doctrinal belief or an interpretation of what the Scriptures tell us, or this might be a little close to home, or over our political leanings and what we think about the way that the world is uh, being run, or even our response to the failings of others around us. Uh, If you doubt that, go to your favorite Christian page on Facebook and look at the comments section. I do that actually sometimes. It's like a train wreck. You know, it's like you got to like, you got to like look at it as you're, you know, or a car accident on the side of the road, you're, you're driving along and you look at it and you, you, you got to look at it like it is there, it is present, and this is in the church. Now, I don't know about you, but I get to a place in this narrative, I get to a place in this text, and I'm looking for some hope, right? Because now I'm feeling like, all right, I need you, Jesus, because... I look at my life of wisdom and it's like, at times, it's all over the place. I think this is where James needs to give us some gospel language. He needs to remind us that we on our own cannot simply will ourselves to live a life in this way. So what does James say about this divine wisdom? He says in verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven, it is first of all pure. He says that, look, before anything else, this wisdom that comes from God, this wisdom that comes from above, it is pure. This is fascinating to me. Uh, The Greek word here is the word hagnos. And it, it means to be free from defilement. It means to be holy. It means to be pure from the inside out, to be free from all guilt. Now, is this a word that describes us? Well, in a manner of speaking, it can be. But on the basis of our life, I mean, even on our very best day, we're not free from guilt, are we? We're not free from the defilement of our sin or the sin of those around us or the world. So what does it mean? What is he saying? Where do we go with this? That that, that first of all, the wisdom from above is, is pure. And I go right in my mind to, to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and He will forgive us our sins and what? Purify us from all unrighteousness. Adam brought up uh, Psalm 51 uh, in his teaching from last week. And he uh, recounted David, uh, uh, his prayer and his, this psalm after his, his very public failure 
uh, of, of adultery uh, and murder. And David, he, he pleads with God and he says, create in me a, what? A pure heart. And one of my favorite verses is Ezekiel 36, 26, where it says, I will give you a, heart, a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The reality is that we need a new source in order to live this life of wisdom that comes from God. We need to be made pure. It's fascinating to me when I think of, of the way that James talks about this wisdom of, of good deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Because who models this better than anyone else but Jesus? In his ultimate display of this good deed done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Jesus, he looked not to himself, but rather to the interest of those that he came to save. In Jesus' own words, he says, I have come to seek and save the lost. Philippians 2, 6-8 says that, that Jesus, being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Selfish ambition. He did not consider that. Instead, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on a cross. Jesus, in humility, he makes a way for us to live a new creation life marked by this wisdom that is from God, and he shows us what it looks like. But as Christians, we have a choice, don't we? I was troubleshooting a a plumbing issue that I had with my tub recently. This was like when it was like single-digit temperatures and like the wind chill was like zero. It's very cold. And the problem was, as Heather and Lily can testify, the shower started out like nice and hot, but like within seconds, it like starts to get cooler and cooler and cooler. And I mean, to the point where it's like unbearable. And, and, and I'm like sitting here, like I'm like turning the, the nozzle like all the way to hot, but nothing's happening. Nothing is changing. And I did my online research I got on YouTube, and I learned that there was this cartridge inside the handle that regulates the flow of hot water and cold water, and it went bad. It went bad on me. It needed to be removed. It needed to be taken out. It needed to be replaced. And in my situation, this, there was this cap on it that had like, was like, like the water had like, caused it to like be tightened so like securely that I couldn't get it off. So I actually had to like violently remove it with like a, a hacksaw. So I'm up there like cutting it out. Like I'm, I'm cutting out this old part so that I can put in a new part. So that I can make it work again. And this is how I envision what God is doing here. That he takes out the old heart. He puts in the new heart. He enables the, the, the wisdom of God to flow forth from our life. Thankfully, I can get a hot shower now. It's amazing. It's so good. But guess what? I can also get a cold shower. 
Because the reality is, by the decisions I make, I can turn that sucker all the way to hot and live this wonderful hot life. Or I can turn it all the way to cold and I get this freezing, unbearable cold shower. I have a choice now in the matter. And while a life of uh, a spirit of divine wisdom can only come from a new heart, it can only come from the one who can forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, and it is meant to to lead us to good works, to a different way of, of living, we have a choice of whether or not we are going to be agents of peace and wisdom in our life. So what does it look like? What does this wisdom from God look like in the ways that we interact with other people? So James tells us in, in verse 17, we've already talked about the first one. First of all, the wisdom of heaven Uh, The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. And then it is peace-loving. It doesn't ultimately seek victory. It doesn't ultimately seek to be right. It desires peace. In fact, it loves peace. It seeks peace with others and wholeheartedly desires to be reconciled. Divine wisdom, it is then considerate. It's not self-focused but rather it looks to the needs of others around us. Divine wisdom is submissive. It does not seek to dominate. Rather, it seeks mutual submission. First, submission to God, but then submission to others. Divine wisdom, it is full of mercy and good fruit. This reminds me of the the parable of the, the unforgiving debtor that Adam talked about a few weeks ago where Jesus teaches this parable of a king uh, who, who forgave a great debt, one that could not be paid because he had mercy on his servant. But then that servant turns around and does not have mercy on one that owed him a much lesser debt. He demanded payment. And when that payment couldn't be made, he threw that debtor into prison because of his ability his inability to pay. The wisdom that comes from above, it knows the great debt that we have been forgiven. And it lives a life of mercy towards others. Divine wisdom, it is, it is also impartial. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not partial to some over others. It is not partial to self. It does not show favoritism as James has already talked about, but rather it seeks to do good for those who have nothing to offer. As James has already stated earlier in his letter, uh, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture to love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Divine wisdom, it is sincere, it is not disingenuous. It is genuine, it is real, it is not hypocritical, it is not double-minded. So how are we doing? I look at a list like this, and it is without a doubt one that brings conviction to me. And while we might be tempted to read a list like this as a checklist for the way that our life should look, um, I think that it's, on, on one hand, I think it's good for us to to, to allow the Spirit to convict us by a list like this to, 
to, to repent where we need to repent, to, to ask for forgiveness where we need to ask for forgiveness in our life, where we haven't, haven't lived out in this way, or, or maybe even to, to seek reconciliation of others who we've harmed. But I think more importantly, we need to look at a list like this, and it needs to turn our focus to Jesus, who is all of these things perfectly and inasmuch as we are in Him, we are these things. Are we peace-loving? Are we considerate? Are we submissive? Are we full of mercy and good fruit? Are we impartial and sincere? No. Is Jesus all of these things? Yes. Romans 3.22 says this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. Are we these things in Jesus? Yes. James continues in verse 18. And he says, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. This could be more literally translated, uh, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, James is encouraging believers to be active in peacemaking by reminding them of the benefits and the fruit that this brings. Or even more simply, for me, I need simple definitions. As we sow peace, we reap peace. Where earthly wisdom, where it leads to to conflict, the wisdom from uh, from above, from God, it leads to peace. Peace in your hearts. Peace with others. My problem is that I don't, I don't always want to sow peace. Sometimes I just want to be right. I want to be validated. I want justice for the way that I've been wrong. I want to defend myself in the difficult relationships that I experience. I want my way. But a life and a heart that loves peace is not always my natural disposition. And again, I'm reminded... Only in you, Jesus, can this be true of me. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Only Jesus can give real peace in our life. Only Jesus can give true contentment in our life. It is the gifts, air quotes, gifts of the world that we chase after that ultimately result in our hearts being troubled. And my question for each one of us to wrestle with this morning is this. What kinds of seeds are you sowing? What are you spreading out into the soil of your life and out into the world around you? What seeds are you cultivating? What seeds are you watering? What seeds are you nurturing and tending to in your garden? And here's the reality. While we cannot hope to live in divine wisdom without first being in Jesus, each day we have the opportunity to spread and cultivate different types of seeds in our life. As Adam put it last week, we have this this good tree and this 
bad tree inside of us, and we make these daily choices to tend to one or the other, resulting in the fruit of that which we tend to. So how do we cultivate divine wisdom in our life? How do we cultivate this kind of peace in our life? Well, Adam's already said the first one. We welcome in the gospel. Before anything, we have to acknowledge that this divine wisdom, this peace from God, it only comes from Him. I stated earlier, Proverbs 1.7, that the fear of the Lord, the reverence, the awe, the, the, the respect of God, our posture before Him is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom always begins with God and our heart posture towards Him. And furthermore, apart from Jesus, we cannot possess it. And apart from our daily abiding in Him, we will not live it. We must daily preach the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves who we are. We can't conjure up this new way of living, but rather we live as those who have been given a new heart. Nor are we the sum of our failures to live up to this kind of life that James James is describing. The reality is that we live as broken people in a still broken world and we still struggle with sin and conflict and a lack of peace in our hearts. But, but Jesus has rescued God's people from their sin and from its ultimate power, giving us a path to live differently. Obedience through faith by grace. Psalm chapter 1, verses 2-3 through three tells us that when we daily meditate on His law day and night, and when we daily meditate on the truth of the Gospel, we become like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. So I ask, how will you and I make this med- the meditation of our hearts? The psalmist knew that it would take day and night meditation for us to thrive. So we welcome the gospel. We invite it in. We meditate it, meditate on it day and night. But then we have to ask God for it. James, he tells us exactly what to do. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should first ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. This is gospel language. God is ready to give you this type of life, this type of wisdom, this type of peace. He's ready to give you true and lasting peace in your heart that extends outwardly into the lives around you. He does not want to rub your sin and your failure in your face. He doesn't want to remind you of all the ways that you've been selfish or envious or unwise. He is wanting to give generously without finding fault. How can He find us without fault? Because He has made a way to purify us from our sin and our unrighteousness. In Jesus, we are accepted. We are declared righteous. We are without fault. Do you, like me, see the evidence of selfish ambition or bitter envy in your life? 
will you, in the next few minutes, uh, as we pause to pray, ask God for divine wisdom? Will you ask Him for a pure heart? A new heart? Will you believe Gospel language that He is ready to give generously to you without finding fault? And to ask for this wisdom on the basis of the love that He has displayed displayed for you on the cross. The truth is, none of this is easy. James, as he continues in chapters... Uh, verses 1-3 through three of chapter 4, he positions all of this as a battle of desire. He says that our fights and our quarrels, the lack of peace in our life and in our communities and our relationships, they come from our desires that battle within us, that wage war within us. And this battle is real. Which is why I want to close our time this morning I'm going to invite the worship team to come up now. And I want to invite you and me, because I need it, into a time of reflection, a time of assessment, maybe a time of repentance, and a time to ask God for wisdom, or maybe a time to ask God for peace in your heart or in your life, or in your relationships. So as the worship team begins to play, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. A prayer that I feel like is the right response for, uh, to what we've read together this morning. And then I want us to listen. To listen to what God has to say for us. To listen to His view of us and who we are, what our identity is in Christ, that we are a new creation people created for good works. And then we're going to ask God for what we need. We're going to ask him for new hearts to transform our hearts so that it is more wholly marked by a desire for him than it is the world a desire for Him over a desire for our world. To ask for the wisdom to live a beautiful life of peace. To ask the Spirit to enable us to do the impossible. To sow seeds of peace in the midst of a broken world and in some ways in our broken relationships. So would you pray with me now?